Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I am joined by Lauren Rosario Maldonado. Nice to see you on the program. Nice to see you, Pete. Thank you for having me today. Well, it's a pleasure. We were talking just before we started to hit record, and I'm going to give everybody a, a little brief update why I asked Lauren to be on the program. And I'm going to pay her another compliment in public, even though I paid her this compliment privately before. It's rare that I come across somebody on LinkedIn who I think their content is incredibly rich and deep. And, and Lauren, your content is certainly that across a wide variety of topics. So it's an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. And you have the most creative bookshelf I've ever seen behind you. <laughs> you have to watch this on YouTube yeah. if you're listening to it. For those who can't see it, if you ever do, yeah, it's, uh, it reflects my brain and how it operates. So. It's a leaning tower of books, coffee mugs, pictures, and things in all directions, and it looks like it's going to fall over. <laughs> That's yes. great. But yet it works for me, right? Organized it's, like you said, it's a visual image of how your brain works, which I think is great. So, Lauren, you're from New York. You live in Florida now. You're fond of both places, which I also think is very interesting because they're so incredibly different. But there's another another hint of diversity, right? If you can interact with people in New York and Florida, you can. Those are two spectrums. Well done. Yes, they are literally two polar opposites. Very much so. So, I'd like to maybe drill a little bit into your background. When you were growing up, were there any people in your life—parents, friends? friends of your parents, early coworkers or schoolmates, where you started to look around you and realize, you know, everybody brings a little something different to the table. And did that strike you as richness? Was there something about it? Or have you always thought that way? Not so intensely. I saw differences. I come from, you know, a very humble background. My father is a pastor in Seventh-day Adventist Church. We moved around many, many times because he was always building up churches across the U.S. And we lived in Puerto Rico for an extended period of time. So the differences I saw, I saw them more as an observer, not necessarily integrating with the differences I saw. I didn't really internalize what those differences meant until I was an adult working in HR for a global organization. And you chose to get a Bachelor of Science in Industrial and Organizational Psychology. Did you know right when you got to college, that's what I want to do? Or did you kind no. of get there and find your way? Oh, really? I found okay. my way. Or it found me. I, you okay. know, my first degree, uh, my associate's was in uh, child psychology and child abuse prevention. So I've always been attracted to psychology, anthropology, all of the Gs, right? Like sociology. I ventured into organizational psychology once I was in the midst of my HR career. Okay, very good. And when you got to the human resources field, was it what you thought it would be? No, actually. It was also two polar opposites. One part was forcing a lot of rigidity. Mm Mm-hmm. And one part was reinforcing connection. And I was always gravitating towards the connection side. Okay. Never use the word hate, but I will use it in this context. 
anything rigid having to do with HR when it came to policies and things like that, because I always, I was always trying to find ways to blend it with connection. And I think that's kind of how I landed in cultural intelligence. Um, I think that I always emphasize and always strive to connect some way, somehow. I don't know that many people understand that the term cultural intelligence is even a thing, right? And my observations of HR, and I've been blessed in, in a couple of my startup companies, I was fortunate to work with some of the best people in HR I've ever met, right? And we had similar views that human resources is a weapon to be wielded in the right way. It's intentional. It's, it's not a set of rigid rules, right? Most human resource policies or employment handbooks are a set of rules written to address the small 1% of people who will do something wrong, right? For And therefore, it sounds like an entire manual of you're a child, you will be treated like a child, and here's all the things you can do to be punished. It doesn't has very little often to do with how do we make you better? How do we make our company better? How do we, how do we drive performance? So you're right, it's procedural, it's rigid. It's not, it's not connecting. When did you come across the concept of cultural intelligence? I came across with uh, this concept when I was studying for my master's in organizational psychology. There was a strong focus on cross-cultural psychology. And I was drawn to it because it was the first time that I was working in a global landscape. And I was working with people from Latin America as well. And I found differences there, even though we spoke the same language and shared a lot of the same values. And I found that cultural intelligence for the first time provided neutral language for me to relate to others who were different. You know, throughout this course, this particular course I was taking at the time, I realized, wow, this is, you know, I've, I've read so much about emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence, but never really cultural intelligence. I mean, to put it simply, it's, it's a framework that helps you understand and relate with people who are different. Okay. The emphasis there is understand. And that understanding, I found, is often skewed by our own personal values and, and the lenses that we come from and wear every day. And so for the first time, I remember telling a colleague, you know, I, I thought I had discovered gold at the time. I felt like, oh my God, this is the end all be all, right? And my colleague is looking at me like, okay, well, what's, what's the big deal? But once I explained he saw the value in it and, and it just started almost like an obsession for me because you're right. It's not talked about enough or very often. You often hear the word emotional intelligence, but hardly ever cultural intelligence. It's, it's fairly recent research. I want to say within the last 10, 15 years, at least this particular term. Uh, but it, the focus area started in the 80s when you had these major multinationals like, you know, Toyota and the IBMs of the world who were experiencing all these things and needed to find some, some common ground with cultures and people who were different. And so at the time, those differences were reflected by national culture differences, right? Or... Um, or ethnic differences. But fast forward to today, you have differences coming from all different angles, right? You talk about 
sociocultural differences and gender identity differences, religious belief differences. And so cultural intelligence provides a space for you to develop those skills to, at the very least, understand what those differences represent. I think that's such a key thing for any leader of any organization, let alone people in HR and also everybody in the organization to recognize sometimes the best result of a conversation is I understand. It, it may not have to align with my beliefs or my upbringing or my religious thoughts or anything else, but if I can say I understand, and, and I think the biggest challenge is, is you may, you know, if I've been raised in the Southeast United States, um, and I'm, I'm a Midwest guy, but if I was raised in the Southeast, I've got certain inherent beliefs and cultural thoughts and religious beliefs. And all, I've experienced things a certain way. And my parents did, and then their parents did. And if I meet somebody in Southeast Asia who was born and raised there, they're going to have very different thoughts and belief about some of the very same topics. And once you understand that that's how they were raised, it's no different. They see things just differently, right? And they have the same level of belief and passion about them that we do. And when you take the time to, and I, I also find in my international travels that if you take the time to ask someone about how or why they feel that way, they're happy to tell you. 100%. And if you listen, and if you say, tell me more, or okay, maybe I don't have to tell me more, it, you, you create a richness in a relationship. Some of my closest friends were probably not aligned in 80 or 90% of the things we think about. Just wonderful people. And you know, we can have deep dialogues and good discussions and just have a respect for each other. I think that's a lost art. And that's one of the reasons I reached out because I think your writing and your content is incredibly thought-provoking. I, I don't want people to miss it, right? So I, I want to help people find what you're saying. And I'd like to figure out a way to help uh, organizations weave it into their culture and have thoughtful, intentional discussions about this because DEI is a polarizing thing and it shouldn't be. It should be about understanding. It should be about, because you, you can't pick the people you work with, right? You, so you just got to kind of make it work, right? You, you got to make it work. And when you think about the fact that you're, you're pursuing your doctoral degree right now as well, you have a job and you have a bunch of other organizations you support. When you wake up in the morning, what is the thing that gives you the most joy about what you do? Impact. Impact. Wonderful. And how do you, what's the best way for you to, to provide impact, do you think? The best way is through connecting. Okay. To your point, when I write something, it means so much for me to, for people to get it for people to connect with what I'm saying. I don't care how many uh, likes or comments I get, so long as it's someone who's reading it understands it. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised. Sometimes I'll put out content and I'll think, you know, I, you can ask my husband. I literally spend my day writing on my phone all day. We're driving, I'm on my phone all day, every day. It's, I have to get these things out of my head. And when they just, when they come out, I have copious amounts of notes about different subjects. And sometimes I'll write, you know, I'll pick something out of that basket and I'll put it out there thinking this was a thought like a week ago. And one person will reach out and say, you know, I never really thought about, about it that way. This helped me do X, Y, Z. 
just that impact alone helps me feel like I'm, I'm helping someone connect the dots too, right? We were talking earlier about how there's so many different things, so many different intersections, but connecting the dots is very difficult. So I try to simplify that for, for people. Well, and I think if the more people observe your writing style, I think they'll begin to appreciate it. Because what you do very, very well is you'll, your hook lines are good, right? You have something that gets people to go to the more button and click down and find out why. But then you set, you set the scene. This is the topic I'd like to talk about. Then you have this great way of saying, why does it matter? Like, this is why it's relevant. This is why you might want to pay attention if you're an HR executive, a leader or an employee or whoever it might be. But I love the fact that you give practical steps for employers. Like you just say, and whatever your topic is, you give people something to go do. And that's highly unusual. These, If you're writing this out on your phone and then you go tease it out and flesh it out, my goodness, you must be writing a lot. Because these are just, it, this is a master class in intentional cultural intelligence. And I hope people begin to see that. So you're right. And I'm guessing your audience is building as a slow burn, right? This is a very particular audience. I don't think the fact even this concept is 10 to 15 years old, which means it's still in its infancy and it's changing daily. Like you mentioned, the things people used to be concerned about at IBM or Toyota in the 80s are very, there's, that's, that's two fifths or two sixths or two tenths of what they have to be thinking about now. And a lot of the things that they're thinking about now, like when it was culture and it was an ethnicity, those two things didn't necessarily go deep into the human psyche, right? It was like, well, if I'm going to travel for IBM to Japan, I've got to know the traditions. I have to understand the cultures, how to greet someone, how to hold your business card the proper way, that there's gifts exchanged. There's certain, I would call traditions that reflect those things. I was at Kimberly Clark and GE, and we spent a lot of time training executives to know how to do those things in different countries. But now, a lot of these issues are deep personally held beliefs, religious beliefs, all sorts of things that become much more delicate to have those discussions and figure it out. And we were talking beforehand, you know, I think we need to be careful as a society to make sure that no one gets a seat at the table because of one of the five diversity things we talk about, but they should never be prevented from having a seat at the table for those reasons either, right? And, and I think that's a, if, if everybody can recognize that's what we're trying to accomplish here. Right. I'm in, I'm in recruiting, so I'm in talent all the time. I have to be very cautious about, and I've had companies say to me, Hey Pete, I want you to hire an African American female for this role. And I tell them, I'm not going to do that. I don't take that job. I will hire the best person for that role. And I will find as diverse of a slate of people as I can, because I want that. I want, I want different thoughts and views and I want a richness of different ideas at the table and you choose the best person. That's not something I can do. I think I can't go do that. And once we have that discussion, they're like, okay, now they understand that. And that's my job then to go find as a wide of pool as I can pull from and then make sure I bring people. When I put a slate in front of a customer, everybody should be able to do the job. They should all be able to do the job. And then they can find cultural fits, passion for the role, specific nuances, maybe a strength of one area versus another area that, that, you know, outshines, but it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be at the table because of the color of their skin or their religious beliefs or their gender identity. They should be there because they can do the job. Right. And I think people miss that. I think they overshoot on both sides of the spectrum. And that's when I see your writings, you get one level, you get one or two levels deeper. You're looking right past those barriers and it's just excellent. It's excellent. So my next question is when you think about sitting in front of a a talent team at a company and they're struggling 
whether it's retention, recruiting, performance. And sometimes they have an idea what the problem is. Sometimes they don't. What would be the first question you would ask them if they say, look, Lauren, we're messed up. We don't know where to begin. What would be the first place you'd go? Tell me more. Perfect. Dig deeper. Right. Dig deeper. Right. Tell me more. Tell me more. What What's happening? A lot of times when people say, I don't know, it really means I don't understand. Right. So my job is to help them get there. Let's first understand what's here. And let's dig deeper. Right. You know, to your point, they want to get to action. Well, how do you know what right action to take if you don't know what's here? What I find fascinating is you're um, part of the CQ Fellow Program, Cultural Intelligence Center, and you have your title is you're in a, you're in an apprenticeship. I love that, by the way. You're a talent savant. You've been doing this a long time, and yet you you've elected to become an apprentice to really learn this program. Other leaders should be looking at that and going, I can't believe that because that's how we all learn. What's been your biggest surprise? As a chief people scientist in your at, at Cultura, right when you at the company you're at, what's been the biggest surprise? In other words, when you're sitting in a room, where's the biggest blind spot in a leadership team when it comes to talent? The biggest blind spot is humility, lack thereof. Lack of humility. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use your own words. Tell me more. Yeah, it's funny because. You mentioned that I'm in an apprenticeship and I have all these accolades behind my name, yet I'm doing this apprenticeship. What I have learned is that I know nothing at all, and you're never going to learn everything. And so having humility about that helps you put things in perspective when you are, you know, when you're leading or not, when you're interacting or not. Everyone's leading, whether they have a leadership title or not. And time and time again, what I see is a lack of cultural humility, humility, primarily driven by a lack of understanding. Well, this is interesting. It's the lack of understanding of the individual and the lack of understanding of what makes up that individual. And all of the above. They don't understand themselves, (sighs) where their beliefs, their values, come from and how their own heritage and history has shaped those values, Mm. which then prevents them from understanding anyone else's lived experience. And so looking in the mirror first helps you gain that understanding and helps you connect with the humility that helps then open the door to understanding and connection. And they're then subsequently relating with others. Are there specific exercises that you help someone drill into themselves? My favorite part is the x-ray because it is truly an x-ray. It's doing a deep dive into where your beliefs, where your core beliefs and values come from. And so whether it's an x-ray or you call it looking in the mirror, it really helps the person kind of take a step, a step back and assess what are my roots and how does those shape the way I exist in the world? And why does this matter, right? It matters because I can never understand someone else's lived experience, even if they look like me, Sure. if I don't understand my own. 
Well, one of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. Exactly. When you look at that movie, there's so much happening there and different cultures coming together, especially the leaders, right? Denzel and his, and his, and the other coach, when they have to really figure out how to work together and then the kids start to pick up on it, it's an incredibly powerful movie. And I think it should be required watching for any high schooler. 100%. It forces the x-ray. It does. And if you see time and time again, anyone who's going through anything really transformed after they've done that, after they've taken a step back and gone within and really dig deep into what it is that, that exists with it. If you don't understand all aspects of your identity, how can you coexist with someone else? Well, and I think where we've, the pendulum has swung in, in both directions potentially too far is the fact that once you realize what your own identity and shape and beliefs are and recognize that it's okay to have different thoughts and beliefs of someone else and still love them, I'm going to use the word love, even though we're talking about you know a company, you still need to have the ability to love other people and wish for their success. The same thing means is I can't take, let's say I've, I've done a deep understanding of my beliefs and my values and I have strong opinions and you can ask my wife, she would, she would know that I do. It doesn't mean that I can force them on someone else and make them have the same beliefs or opinions or on their family or anyone else. They're mine and, and I like them to be respected, but it doesn't mean everybody else has to feel the same way. 100%. Yeah. I think we've, we feel like, well, I come from one side of the political aisle. You come from, you know, everybody has to be on my side or they're wrong. It's not true, right? There's a lot of reasons people believe the way they feel could have been something in their, their upbringing or something that happened to them that make them feel this way. And once you get to that, even some of the most delicate, delicate issues, political, religious, whatever they are, once you understand why someone feels that way, again, you don't have to agree with their belief, but now you understand why they believe it. Right. And that changes the way you can have the discussion. I've seen it time and time. Like I've had discussions where you know we vehemently disagree. Sure. But we respect that we have an opinion and we voiced it and we agree to disagree. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I then understand what the next person's you know position is. I understand where they're coming, but it doesn't mean that I have to adopt what their beliefs are. And you know that's the biggest misconception, right? That in order to adapt, you need to adopt. Totally the opposite. You can preserve your own authenticity, right? To while still coexisting with someone else who's preserving theirs. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, as we just mentioned, I think that's the biggest challenge in society is we, we feel like we all have to adopt. We don't. We don't. You know, even family members have completely polar opposite beliefs, and yet we love each other to death. In my own family, sure. Yeah. You know, and it's okay. Because you're involved in these other organizations and doing some doctoral work, your title's chief people scientist. Tell me, what, what's your day like there? What do you do typically at Cultura? How does that, how does that play out? 90% of my time is spent on research. Okay. Literally. Good. Researching, especially because uh, for the fellowship, my particular portion is developing a framework. And so, you know, I've, I'm involved in copious amounts of research for that, research for school. I was doing some research for an academic chapter that I wrote in, in June. So 90% of my time is spent on research. And, and everything, every nugget that I extract from the research, I put it in a note, tag it, and then 
repurposed for either LinkedIn or another or another channel. Well, I, I have 20 posts in my head already about this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> I'll be ta- I'll be tagging you a lot because uh, you've you've really given me a lot to think about and hopefully a lot of other people to think about. Tell us about your family. You said you're you're married, you live down in Florida. Any kids or nephews, yes. nieces and nephews running around? We have a baby girl who's 30. She just turned 30 this year. I've been <laughs> baby girl because that's how we always see her. Yep. And I've been married to uh, my husband for 32 years, actually. It's been 32 years. I'm actually entering that phase where you start parenting your parents. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I'm parenting my parents before I have grandchildren. So I'm developing a framework for that. Sure. And really enjoying this stage because it's different. There's all these nuances going on, but I actually am enjoying practicing cultural intelligence on them. It's it's amazing. <laughs> if you're sitting, and I'm, we're roughly the same age. I have, a, I have a 30-year-old daughter as well. I do have my first grandson who's coming to visit tomorrow again. He's my favorite mm-hmm. human. How old is he? Of course. 16 months. He's awesome. That's such and a delicious it, age. FaceTime is our... This is our favorite thing. They live a little oh, over two hours so away. Oh yeah, he's awesome. He's the best. But Don't you know, he recognizes. Enough, but... Oh, thank you. He recognizes us on the phone, and he can tell. He'll sell Bumpa. He calls me Bumpa, and uh, he tries to grab me through the phone, which is awesome. We can't wait. But my wife's parents have passed away in the past few years, and she took care of both of them, and her, her mom especially for the last five years, like her daily caregiver. You know, I guess we're called the sandwich generation at this point, right? We're, we're sandwiched between our parents and our kids. Both sets of our parents grew up at a time where I think your beliefs were even more cemented. You held on to them. There were traditions, and that's just what you did. So when you sit with your parents, and I'm not sure if your husband's parents are still alive, how do you have that? Are, are they open, or are they curious, or are they like, oh, Lauren? <laughs> Uh, all of the above, actually. Okay. My mom, she's entering that state. You know, my parents are divorced and they, they okay. both remarried. And it's been many, many years. So their spouses are, you know, extended family. Yes. In fact, my stepmom, I call her really my mom and my stepdad as well. So my mom is entering that stage where she's getting nostalgic and kind of softer. Yeah. Before she was, you know, oh my God, here she comes again with this stuff, like whatever. Now sure. she's, you know, she's simmering. My dad is digressing. You know, he's, he's a very learned individual, very, very, very intellectual. But now he's becoming a teenager, right? And so all of that is thrown out the window and he's doing these random things, making random decisions you know, that's the stage that he's in. And so just the other day, we had a heated discussion about the way that he's traveling and and planning for travel and how he's making, you know, last minute travel decisions, which cost him more money. Sure. And literally he knocked all the cultural intelligence out of my system in like two seconds. (laughs) Because I'm thinking, okay, let's, in fact, I said, let's talk about this rationally. 
Like, let's, let's think about this rationally, right? You want me to do X, but that absolutely makes no sense and it's going to cost more money. I saw it immediately. As soon as I said that, he literally digressed to like a two-year-old, right? And it just, sure. he went full throttle. And, and I'm thinking, I'm just digging myself deeper here. Sure. And my husband's like signaling to me, you know, next to me to just let it, like, let it, just let it slide. Just, and I'm yeah. like, okay, you know what? Fine. That's, that's what you want to do? Okay. So I hang up and then he calls me back, I don't know, moments later, literally with his tail between his legs and just all apologetic, right? He says, you know, let, let's go with your plan. Let's move forward. And I'm thinking, A, I have to go back to CQ planning, right? I have to yeah. strategize. That's funny. And, and really use that strategy and infuse it with better knowledge about who this human is in front of me so that I can take better action, right? Take you action with him next time. And I literally made a list of all the things that I needed to talk to him about and what potential roadblocks I could face as I'm talking to him. And sure enough, the next day, after, after that discussion, I called him and I applied literally every single aspect of the strategy. And he was a completely different person. You know, I think it's interesting how I've, I've learned more about being a business leader from being a parent than any place else. 100%. Yeah, with my three kids, they're wonderful. We're very blessed. That my, my kids still want to hang out with us, which is a, a blessing. But they're mm-hmm. very different. And my parenting style had to be very different with all three of them. Yes. And it was my oldest son, who's our middle child, and he was probably 13 or 14, just in high school. And uh, we were having a moment where he was being a teenage boy, and he was giving me a little bit of toot, and I was having a long day at work, and I wasn't having any of it. And it was, a, <laughs> let's just say, a, a intense conversation. And I was doing most of the talk. Afterwards, I said to my wife, who, God bless her, knows when to observe and when kind of jump in and grab my arm and go, hey. You know, she would just kind of let this play out. And afterwards I looked at her and, and I said, uh, I can't do that with him. It's not how he communicates. He has, and, and 14 year olds don't know they have a communication style. Adults do, right? It's my job to help figure it out. It's not his. Right. So from that point forward, and we had a great relationship. It wasn't like our relationship was bad, but I recognized this was one of those points where I need to figure this out or the next 10 years are going to be tough. And uh, it changed our relationship. He observes much more than he engages in conversation. His observations are much more impactful for him than any conversation. And so I I learned to be fewer with words, more with action, listen more, not offer advice more often than not, just listen. And then when he asks, then that door is open and offer it. And I wouldn't say that we figured it out with all three of them, right? I mean, they all make some decisions. You kind of look, hmm. I don't know where they're from, <laughs> but I take that more into work than I've taken anything from work into my home. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And, and now I, when my kids went to school and you probably observed this with your daughter, I wasn't the only one parenting them anymore. We weren't right now. Other people's parents 
That's right. And how they raise their kids are now influencing my kids' behavior. And they're kind of going, well, there's more out there than my parents' world. How, why is everybody else get to do this? And I can't, right? So it's uh, it's fascinating. And the fact that we're in our 50s and still doing that with our parents is yes. evidence that we're still, we're still apprentices. Yes. And I, you know, the one thing I was telling my husband, I can so relate to what you're saying. I, I was telling my husband, I, I just, I didn't get any warning. I literally woke up one day. My parents were teenagers. There was no warning sign. There was, you know, no ramp. It was like, okay, I'm going to digress now. Surprise. And so it's a, it's a totally different stage. My daughter is probably acting in way more mature ways than, than my parents. And it's interesting. It's interesting to see. It is. When you finish your doctorate, What's next? What do you want to do? I want to teach. I really want to. Everyone has that reaction. I'm, I'm so shocked. I, everyone that I say this to has that same reaction. I love teaching. I think it's great. It's because I'm so vested in the future of work. And I see how many things have become a lost art, like civil discourse, and, you know, relationships and connections. There are different ways of, of connecting now, but there are certain basics that have gone out the window. And so I really want to teach this next generation and beyond. In a university setting or would you teach in corporate settings? Both. Both. Okay. Both. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you'd be great at it. I think so too. I'm so excited. I really am. I've done some guest lecturing at, at Duke and UNC and I absolutely found it incredibly satisfying. Isn't it so rewarding? They teach you so much as well. It is. And I think this kind of teaching though, as we've talked about, it just doesn't happen anywhere. I mean, this, no. this teaching isn't, this isn't going on in any college or university. It's not even going on in any no. company. No. Have you thought about doing a TEDx talk? Or, Not in this way, anyway. Are you doing, doing any TEDx talks or TED talks? Uh, next year, I'm also working on my book that happens to come out around November, December. And so once I finish this book, which I'm knee-deep in revisions for as we speak, okay. I will start ramping up the TEDx's and everything in between. Well, I think uh, everyone should hear what you have to say. So I'm going to do my best to help promote that. And I don't say that very often. No, I appreciate that. I think you've got a really unique way of articulating thoughts that a lot of us are thinking about, but we don't know how to put them in order. Like you said, you you can connect things that other people aren't connecting. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I can't wait to read your book. So when I see it posted, I'll be the first person in line to buy it and I'll be at your TED Talk. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you reaching out. And this, I love this conversation a lot. Well, Lauren, good luck this weekend with your teenage parents and your adult <laughs> daughter. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I'll put uh, contact information for how to reach Lauren uh, in the show notes. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much, Pete. Enjoy your grandson. I will. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.